0: We give thanks to the Lord today that Christ has set himself up as our King, our Lord, our treasure. You know, the words that we just sang there are only true of us because of God's grace. They're only true of us because Christ has interceded for us. He has come to us. He has uh, exalted himself in our hearts. He's made himself known in our hearts, and he has given us the gift of faith. And so we sing words like that with great confidence in the Lord, but also with great thanks to Him that He has done this for us. This is not something that we did for ourselves. Uh, Jesus did not just throw open a door and we chose to walk through it, and that is it. But the Lord Himself, in His grace, came to each of us, the Good Shepherd. And the only reason we're here this morning If we're born again, if we know Christ, the only reason that is the case is because of his grace. And so let me just uh, plead with you, if you're not a believer and you don't have those words in your heart, those aren't words, all I have is Christ, is just foreign to you, cry out to the Lord today. Ask for his mercy. Ask him to show you his glory. Ask him to save you. Ask him to give you his spirit. If you would, go with me in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 8. We are in a little passage today, verses 16 to 19. Chapter 8 of Exodus, verses 16 to 19. Our time in Exodus has brought us to the ten plagues. And so far, we have covered plagues one and two. So we're going through the book of Exodus. Uh, If you're visiting with us, uh, this is uh, how we do sermons. This is how we teach God's Word, is going through sequentially books of the Bible, or in some cases, chunks of books. So for example, uh, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, and we now find ourselves in the book of Exodus, and we've gotten up to Chapter 8, verses 16 to 19, and we've covered so far, we're in the middle of the 10 plagues, and we've covered so far plagues 1 and 2. And at this point, we have seen many things about God. But just to name a few, we've seen His sovereignty, His sovereignty over events and circumstances, His sovereignty over human hearts. Uh, That's important for us to recognize, going back to what I said at the very beginning uh, that God is sovereign over hearts. He's not just sovereign over what happens outside of us. He's also sovereign over what happens inside of us. And of course we recognize that this is in such a way that it does not rob us of responsibility. That human responsibility and divine sovereignty fit together in scripture. They're, they're held together often in tension but presented both of them as true, but we have seen God's sovereignty over events and human hearts. We've seen His supremacy, His supremacy over all so-called gods. In some ways, there probably is not a better passage in the Bible to attack idolatry than the ten plagues. You say, well, that's kind of weird. Why would the ten plagues be laser targeted against idolatry in our lives. Well, the reason is this. That's precisely what God is doing in Egypt. He is showing the Egyptians and He's showing His own people that He is supreme over all so-called gods, the gods of men. In this case, the gods of the Egyptians. And, and so as we come to a text like this, we recognize that God is showing himself supreme over all the things that we call gods. All the little idols that we have in our pockets, metaphorically speaking. All the little idols that we carry around throughout the week that we have at home, that we have swirling around in our heads this morning. All of those are shown to be inferior to this one true living, I am God, demonstrating his supremacy in the ten plagues. And we've seen, of course, his power. God's power over all creation. That we're not just talking about frogs or water or flies or locusts or whatever else. We're talking about God's omnipotence. We're talking about God's creative power and his power over all of his creation. As we come to a passage, larger passage like the ten plagues, we are meant to be enamored with God's power the sheer power of the living God. And in all of this, we're being led by the hand to trust Him, to pray to Him, and to be in all of Him. So the plagues are quite practical for us. They're interesting to us. Uh, they're, they're, They're kind of entertaining in some respects. But far more than that, They lead us. They are like a shepherd. They lead us as sheep towards the pasture of trusting in God, praying to Him, and being in awe of Him, worshiping Him. They have this effect in our hearts. And they would have had this effect in the hearts of the Israelites. They would have had this effect in the heart of Moses and in Aaron's heart. They would have had this effect... In the hearts of some of those living in Egypt who were not Israelites, who left Egypt in the Exodus with the Israelites. God is putting himself on display in the Ten Commandments. In the, in the Ten Plagues. Ten Commandments. We'll get there. That's later. But God is putting himself on display. So let me just ask you, do you see him? Is this wasted time for you? you just going through this portion, just sort of zoning out, or maybe just getting lost in the interesting details of ancient Egypt because you're into history and that sort of thing. Or are you seeing God as he reveals himself here? Are you trusting him? Are you bowing down to him alone? And I must insert that word alone. Not just bowing down to him, but bowing to him exclusively. The worship of Yahweh is exclusive. It crowds out every other competitor. Every so-called God that would erect itself next to or in place of God is pushed away. Is driven off the cliff. Is thrown in the trash. Are you bowing to Yahweh alone? Last week, we looked at the second plague, and the second plague was frogs, frogs everywhere. There were frogs in the bedrooms, in the beds. There were frogs in the kitchens, in the ovens, in the kneading bowls. There were frogs on Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. Frogs everywhere. That's what we Looked at last week. Kind of strange to think you come to church and hear a sermon on frogs, but that's the plague that we got last week. And surprisingly, we saw that the hard-hearted Pharaoh actually requests prayer. It was the strangest thing as we came to it last week that Pharaoh actually asks Moses and Aaron to pray for him, to intercede for him to the Lord. And so we read... In chapter 8, verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so the Pharaoh who at one time had said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Who is this God, Moses, that you come in the name of, who is he that I should obey his voice? Who is he should, that, that I should do anything that he says? And now, even after just the second plague, <clears throat> Pharaoh is asking Moses to plead to the Lord. He, he actually, for the first time, aside from that denial of him, puts Yahweh on his tongue. The name of the Lord is put into the mouth of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And he asks Moses and Aaron to plead to him. He asks, recognizing and acknowledging that this God is, in fact, real. When Moses asks when, Pharaoh says tomorrow. And when Moses prays, the frogs stop. Moses knows that God will hear And answer his prayer. Now, how is it that Moses is able to step out in this? He he says to Pharaoh, and we get no record that he's consulted God, as I said last week, that he's asked God, Hey, I'm gonna gonna tell Pharaoh this and you're gonna do this, right? And God says, Yes, Moses, that's what's gonna happen. Or Moses God told Moses to do this. We don't get any record of that. We just have Moses asking Pharaoh when he wants him to pray to the Lord to have the frogs removed. Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And Moses says, it will be. Moses knows that God will hear him. Why? Well, we get the answer in chapter 8, verse 10. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Moses knows what God is about. He knows what God is doing. And what God is doing is glorifying himself. And Moses is saying these things to Pharaoh in accordance with God's desire to glorify himself. Another way to put this is that Moses' boldness in prayer is connected to his desire to see God glorified. Now last week we talked a little bit about boldness in prayer. But I want you to understand that it's not just this kind of generic statement, we need to be bold in prayer. Be more bold in prayer. That's not it. It's that we need to have a boldness in prayer that is tightly tethered to a desire to see God glorified. Where does Moses' boldness, when he goes to God in prayer, come from? A love for God's glory. So often we pray, and maybe we even think we're praying boldly. But we're not interested in God's glory We're not interested in God showing himself supreme and omnipotent. We're not interested in God being glorified through the salvation of sinners or through the growth in Christ's likeness of his people. We just simply want what we want. And so we persevere and we persist and we're bold, but we have no regard in the praying for God's glory. We need to see that the boldness And the love of God's glory are inextricably tied together. But what does Pharaoh do after Moses prays for him? After all the frogs die and are swept into heaps. So God shows up. Moses says, you tell me when I'll pray. He prays. God shows up. All the frogs die. They're swept into these massive heaps. What does Pharaoh do? What does Pharaoh do after he sees God's power? His power to multiply the frogs and then to kill them off at exactly the time that Moses prays for him. Well, that's where we ended last week in verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He hardened his heart and he refused to comply. He refused to listen to the Lord's command. And that's where we pick up today. The second plague has come and gone. And Pharaoh remains unwilling to release the Israelites. Unwilling to let the Israelites go to worship Yahweh in the wilderness. An unwillingness to have God's people worship him as God. A rejection of God's praises. And so this morning we come now to the third plague. And the title for for the sermon this morning is The Third Plague, Annoying Little Bugs. So if you would go and stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we look at these annoying little bugs. Chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. This is The word of the living God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we go through these verses. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning, Lord God. We thank you that you've given us more words to study, more words to listen to, more words to meditate upon. Father, we praise you that you have gathered us together this morning as a group to sit under your word and to hear you speak. God, we are not those who have just come to study an ancient book, but we are those who have come to hear your voice and you speak to us through your word. And so, God, we pray that you would reveal yourself more to us today because we have looked at these verses, God, we ask that you would be exalted, that your character, your attributes would be on display and that we would draw from those the applications of life, many applications of life regarding our confidence in You and our exclusive worship of You. Lord, our trust in You in all of life's vicissitudes, all of life's trials, all of life's difficulties, that we would look to You and trust You and know that You are God, the living God. You're our God. You're the only God, the incomparable God. Father, we pray that you would grow among us a love for one another. We ask that the love of Christ would be ever flourishing here at Four Corners Church. We pray that our joy in Jesus would grow as a result of our time here today. Through the singing, the preaching, the praying, the Lord's Supper through every aspect of the service and through our time together that we would rejoice that you have been gracious to us and given us Christ as our only hope in life and death. That we can say truly from the heart, all I have is Christ. Lord, would you be merciful to us today? Give us ears to hear and minds to understand. Give us hearts to love your truth. And Lord, give us Changes in our behavior, changes in our conduct, changes in our affections. Lord, help us today, we ask. May this time not be in vain for any of us. We pray for the children who are here, normally uh, the younger ones in the back, Lord, learning through the curriculum that we use. Lord, we pray that their time in here this morning would be fruitful, that you would speak, Lord, to each of them in very specific ways through portions of the sermon. Lord, and that they would be awakened to see your glory, that they would be awakened to see Christ. We pray that you would be merciful to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to look this morning at this short passage in two parts. So two parts. These are our two points if you want to write them down. So first, anticipation of destruction. We get that in verses 16 to 17, and then in verses 18 to 19, rejection of evidence. So anticipation of destruction and rejection of evidence. So let's start with the first, anticipation of destruction. For that, we're going to read again verses 16 to 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. You may remember that when we started with the plagues, I mentioned that they come in groups of three. And so commentators, scholars for centuries debate how The plagues should be grouped. And you see these common themes throughout. You see some similarities between them. But it is generally agreed that these plagues can be grouped in threes. With the tenth plague serving as a capstone or a crown. So the first nine grouped in sets of three. And then the tenth plague acts as a capstone. So three plus three plus three plus three plus three plus. One. That's the only math you're going to get today. But there you go. Three plus three plus three plus one. And the major clue for this is the pattern of Moses and Aaron's encounters with Pharaoh. We begin to see a pattern as you're reading through these plagues. So in each set of three, we get this pattern. In the first, in the set of three, they meet Pharaoh down by the water. So Pharaoh comes out in the morning... Typically, it's by the Nile, and Aaron and Moses meet the Pharaoh there in the morning. In the second plague of each set, they go into his palace. They they go into Pharaoh there where he lives, and then in the third plague of each set, it comes without warning. And you find this throughout one, two, three, and then four, five, six, and then seven, eight, and nine. the The pattern holds, which each with each set of Three. And so here we are at the third plague, the final plague in the first set. And as such, this is the first no-warning plague, you could call it. This is the first of the no-warning plagues. There are three of them that we will see. Pharaoh has expressed his unwillingness to yield at the end of plague two. So for now, no further encounter is needed. God simply acts. God simply brings his judgment without warning. So in the other plagues, you get this encounter between Moses and Aaron. They go to Pharaoh. There's a conversation, and then there's a warning, and then the plague comes. You get the implied refusal of Pharaoh to listen, and then the plague comes. Nothing of the sort happens here with the third plague. There is no warning. It simply comes. And here we see once again that God takes the initiative. Moses' only job is to listen for the Lord's voice and to respond obediently when he hears. Let me say that again. Moses has one job, to listen for the Lord's voice and to respond obediently when he hears. And if you think about it, that's really our job. That's our job as Christians. The Christian life is complex in some ways, but in other ways it is very simple. And we have it illustrated for us here in the person of Moses. We listen to the Lord's voice through Scripture and we obey it. Which means that the life of the Christian, you know, we oftentimes talk about Bible reading. And I like any opportunity to explain why it is we read our Bibles. Because you may have grown up in church and you just hear, you need to read your Bible, you need to read your Bible, you need to read your Bible. It's like a duty. It's the duty, it's the top duty of being a Christian. Read your Bible. But it's great when we can see reasons why we ought to read our Bible. What I think we are to understand is that listening to the Lord's voice is the way that we walk with Him. How else are you going to walk with God? Maybe you're thinking, you know, maybe you have as your goal, I want to walk with God. You've heard that. Sounds really nice. I want to walk with God. But you don't read the Bible. What in the world is that? How else are you going to walk with God unless you're hearing Him speak? And how are you going to hear Him speak, apart from some sort of New Age version of Christianity, how are you going to hear Him speak apart from being in your Bible. So it's not just duty, read the Bible. It's walk with God, hear him speak. Excuse me. Hear him speak, and then do it. When he speaks, we act. When we hear scripture, we obey scripture. God here takes the initiative with Moses, and that is Moses' only job. He is God is the great actor. He is the great agent here. And he comes to Moses with a command. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt." <clears throat> the staff is a symbol of God's power. It communicates that the power does not derive from Moses and Aaron themselves. You know, you could have gotten something where Moses and Aaron just hold up their hands. Right? They hold up their hands, or they speak, or they do something with their leg. I mean, I don't know, anything. Where Moses and Aaron do something with their bodies, and then God brings the miracle. But that's not the way God did it. God used this staff. And what it did was it demonstrated that the power is not deriving from Moses and Aaron themselves. They are merely instruments of the Lord. They are holding the staff that God uses to carry out his miraculous judgments. And it's the reason why when Moses leaves the burning bush, God tells him, and make sure you bring the staff. Get the staff. Take the staff. It's an important part of these narratives. And maybe you haven't thought a lot about the role of the staff, But it separates the power from the person himself. And it shows that the power is coming from somewhere else. So we have here God's word and God's power coming against Pharaoh and Egypt in judgment. And as we've seen before, Moses and Aaron obey. At the beginning of verse 17, we get this little sentence. And they did so. Now, to go along with what I was just saying, I want you to see that this little sentence packs a powerful punch. And they did so. In fact, this, and they did so, think about this for a moment, carries the narrative of the plagues forward. God speaks, he tells Aaron and Moses to act, and they did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded, is what carries the narrative forward. It pushes the story along. And I just want to submit to you, this is also the case in our lives, in our stories. God spoke and he did so. God spoke and she did so. This is the way that all of our individual stories move forward as Christians. It, there really is no uh, kind of special ingredient apart from this in the Christian life. God speaks. God tells us what we are to do. He tells us what we are to be. And regardless of how we may feel, regardless of the circumstances we face... We bow before this gracious, supreme God, and we do it. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to be of God. And we get this from the beginning of the Bible. We saw this with Enoch, and we saw this with Noah. We saw it with Abraham. We constantly see it all the way through. And there's a reason that the Holy Spirit constantly repeats these words, and they did just as the Lord said. And he or they did so. This is the way your story will move forward. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel like your Christian life is stunted. You're just like, where where am I at? It's stagnant. It's stunted. My Christian life feels dry. I don't feel close to the Lord. This is what we are to do. We are to go to the Lord and hear him speak. And then we are to do just as the Lord says. This is the way to happiness. This is the way to growth. This is the way to usefulness. This is the way of God's people. And here we read in verse 17 that Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. So here we have another transformation. Just as God turned the staff into a serpent, here the dust of the earth becomes gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, think about that for a moment. God took the dust of Egypt and he turned it into gnats. God also, in Genesis chapter 2, took the dust of the earth, same word, took the dust of the earth and he made man. That's pretty humbling. That's pretty humbling. Ultimately, we have the same origin. We have the same origin as these annoying little bugs. We have the same origin as these gnats. The difference is the will of God. The difference is that when God scooped up this dust, he made image bearers. He made Those who would bear his image in the world. Those who would commune with him, know him. Those who would hear his voice and love him and be loved by him. The only difference is the will of God. The only difference is that God has designed us as his image bearers. But at the end of the day, we must humbly admit that we all go back to the same dust. As one commentator explains it here about the dust, the dust refers to the dry, loose particles on the top of the soil. And so when it says that all of the dust became gnats, we're talking about what's on the surface. It all of a sudden becomes these bugs. There is an immediate production of these little bugs from the dust, and they come up upon people and animals. So what are these little creatures? What are they? Well, we're reading in the ESV gnats. And so there you go, they're gnats. Well, the exact type of bug is unclear. We really just do not know. Just don't know from the Hebrew word what kind of bug this is. So several have been put forward Uh, gnats, mosquitoes, lice, fleas, sand flies. It's one of those. So it's not good either way. One of these little annoying bugs. But the two that get cited the most are lice and mosquitoes. So you go back to the King James Version and you get lice. And here you get gnats. But many uh, commentators will say that this actually refers to mosquitoes. Now that is just unthinkable. That is absolutely unthinkable to have. I mean, you know, we have mosquitoes here. You get bit in the summer and you have, you know, and you might have, Five or six mosquito bites, and that is pretty serious. You're like, this is terrible, I'm going inside, and I'm not coming back out. But you can imagine how many mosquito bites this would have resulted in if, in fact, we are talking about mosquitoes. Josephus and later rabbinic sources suggest that it was lice, so there's some ancient evidence to support lice, but the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation and actually done in Alexandria, Egypt, by those who were familiar with Egypt, the Septuagint translator suggests that it is gnats or mosquitoes, some sort of small winged creature. Either way, we have to conclude that these are biting creatures. Uh, Any of those creatures that I just mentioned bite you. They don't just kind of unsettle you by being on you. They bite you. They nibble at you. I yesterday went on Google and looked at pictures of lice. I don't recommend that. That's not something (laughs) you'll start itching. Uh, But whatever it is, these little things are biting. They're, They're annoying the mind out of these Egyptians. Unbearable irritation for all of the people. And that's where I want to focus for a moment, this idea of it being irritating or annoying. We are still in the category of irritation. As we go through the plagues, these first three, we're still very much dealing with plagues that are just uncomfortable, that are irritating, that make life hard and annoying, a, a pest, something you would want to get rid of, something that affects the nose. The first two, they, the land stinks so bad. And now you have these little biters all of this still under the category of irritation or annoyance the more destructive plagues have yet to come but i want you to see that this la- i want you to see this language in particular of man and beast so this gets to the reason for the name of the point anticipation of destruction i want you to see this language of man and beast in verse 17 it says there were gnats on man and beast well this language is new this is not language that we've encountered before. It didn't say in the last plague that there were frogs on man and beast. This particular language of man and beast is new. And what I want you to see is that it is an anticipation of what is coming later. It is a little pointer to the destruction that will come upon man and beast in the future. And so I want to show you this with a few quotes from the later Plagues. I want you to see how this is anticipating. We're, we're moving with these words, I think. We're meant to understand that we're now moving away from the annoyance and the irritation to much more destructive plagues, which will culminate ultimately in the destruction of the firstborn in all the land in the tenth plague. So let me read you a few quotes from later. So in the sixth plague, with the boils, we read this in chapter 9, verse 9. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And then in the seventh plague with the hail, chapter 9, verse 19, Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field And is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And then finally, in the 10th plague, with the death of the firstborn, chapter 12, verse 12 For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So you do see this language of man and beast. It's sort of tipping us forward. It's leaning away from these annoying plagues and tipping us forward towards these more destructive plagues. First boils and then hail that will actually kill man and beast. And then the 10th plague which will take out every firstborn of both man and beast. Maybe you haven't thought about that. Even the firstborn of the animals were taken out. So that's my point. This new language of man and beast is meant to point the reader forward. Worse things are coming. And it will mean the destruction of animal and human life in Egypt. Pharaoh must let the Israelites go. With both their animals and with all of their people or God's destructive power will fall on the Egyptians and their animals. And in fact, at the end of the ninth plague, Moses says, no, all of our animals have to come with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. That's what Moses says. And then Pharaoh, of course, says at the end of that, get out of my face. If I see you again, I'll kill you. So that's it, that's the end, and Moses says, okay, fine, you won't see my face again, and then we know what comes next, the tenth plague. Pharaoh will not let the people go, he will not let the animals go, so that the people can sacrifice to their God, and so God will afflict both man and beast. Here, with little biting creatures, but later, with destruction and death. So that's the first, anticipation of destruction. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, the rejection of evidence. Look at verses 18 to 19. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. By the way, we're reminded again, as the Lord had said, that everything is moving according to plan. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, though Pharaoh is responsible for the hardness of his own heart. But nothing is is happening by surprise. Moses and Aaron are being reminded all is under God's control, all will play out as God has ordained it. Last week, when looking at the frogs, we got a new feature. And that's one of the things about the plagues that you find, is as you go through, you get these these new features. And so, for example, in the next plague, in the fourth plague, we get this new feature where God specifically says that he will make a distinction between the Egyptians and those of his people in Goshen. And so we get this line. We'll talk about that next week. But it's a new feature, Well, in the second plague, the new feature that we got was this intercessory prayer. We don't get that in the first plague, but in the second plague, Pharaoh asked for Moses to pray to God on his behalf. He asks for Moses to have the frogs removed. Similarly here in the third plague, we get something new, and here it is the magicians can no longer replicate what Moses and Aaron are doing. And this is surprising to us because we've read this now a number of times that the magicians did exactly what had been done by Moses and Aaron. And now we're told that the magicians are unable to do it. Whether through witchcraft or trickery, they have been able up to this point to turn their staffs into serpents, to turn water into blood, And to bring frogs up from the water. So as I say, whether through witchcraft or trickery, they have been able to replicate what Moses and Aaron have done. But now their secret arts run dry. The demonic power they've been relying on through sorcery or their magicians' skills have been found wanting. They cannot do it. They simply cannot perform to replicate Moses and Aaron's sign. And so for the first time, Pharaoh's own people look at him and declare the greatness and authenticity of Yahweh's power. It is amazing. Step by step, last week we got, we got the Pharaoh himself asking that Moses and Aaron plead to the Lord. So he acknowledges the Lord and he asks for prayer to the Lord. This is the Pharaoh of Egypt the one who thought himself to be the manifestation of the gods, the great protector of cosmic order, the son of Ra, the God of the sun. This is Pharaoh asking that someone pray to another god on his behalf to have the frogs removed. And here we have this development of Pharaoh's own people Declaring the greatness and authenticity of Yahweh's power. What are we witnessing? You know, we read these little details and we think, okay, fine, let yeah, it's moving forward. But what are we witnessing? We're witnessing that God's purposes are being accomplished. What were God's purposes? That his name be proclaimed, that his glory be seen, that the Egyptians know that there is no one like the Lord, that there is no one like Yahweh. And that's what's happening here. Step by step, we're seeing the recognition. That Yahweh is God. And so these magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now we get this language, finger of God, in several places throughout the Bible. So for example, Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So the Ten Commandments are said to be written with the finger of God. Psalm 8.3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, the, the heavenly bodies, the moon and the stars are said to be made by the fingers of God. Obviously, God is spirit. He does not have a body. But this is a way of expressing God's creative power. It is a way of expressing his ability, his omnipotence. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So finger of God, like arm of God or hand of God, is a way of referring to God's power, his ability to act. And these magicians say this is the finger of God. Now we don't know what's in the heads of these Egyptians. We don't know what they mean by that. It is probably unlikely that they are ready to bow down and worship Yahweh himself. Probably unlikely that they are there in that moment going to Moses secretly and saying, uh, may we know about more about Yahweh? Although, what if some of these magicians are among the number who leave Egypt with the Israelites. It's interesting, we're not told, but what if some of these Egyptians who in this moment, these magicians recognize that this is the finger of God, what if some of these magicians are those who leave with Moses and the Israelites during the Exodus? We don't know what God they have in mind when they say this is the finger of God. We don't know the extent to which they are ready to blend this God Yahweh into their own pantheon of gods. But what we do see here at the very least is a willingness to admit that Moses and Aaron have access to something that is superior to their own secret arts. Whatever they they think about their own secret arts, whether they think it's some sort of demonic power or whether they know it's just an act of trickery, whatever it is they think about their secret arts, they recognize here That Moses and Aaron have access to something far greater. This is supernatural. It is truly powerful. It is superior in every way. This is God-like power. The likes of which, listen to this, the likes of which they have not seen. So whatever they have seen before, whatever... Demonic power manifested itself in times past in Egyptian religion. Whatever sorts of trickery they had learned, skill after skill, year after year of teaching in this craft of being a magician, nothing like this had ever happened before. They see the hand of God. So how does Pharaoh respond? Maybe now he is ready to listen. Maybe now he is ready to heed Yahweh's command. But no, that's not the case. Despite all the evidence, despite the words even of his own magicians. These magicians are willing to admit defeat. Uh, You get the sense that they're not supposed to fail. If they fail, they're out of a job or maybe out of a head. But they admit here defeat. Despite all of this, we read at the end of verse 19, But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So what is going on here with this this man? Remember, uh, take off his, his, his crown, take off his garments. He's just a man, a descendant of Noah through Ham. He's just a man. What is going on here with this man, Pharaoh? Well, I want to read you a quote that I think really gets at the heart of it. This is where we'll finish up this morning. I want to read you a quote from one commentator. This is what he says. It was not that he was denying the reality of what had taken place through the instrumentality of Moses and Aaron. Though his own magician priests testified to the reality of a power higher than any of the gods of Egypt being at work. Pharaoh was not prepared to acknowledge this. The evidence, listen to this, the evidence presented to him was not going to overturn his inner desire to maintain his independence from the Lord and his opposition to him. I'm gonna read that sentence again. The evidence presented to him was not going to overturn his inner desire to maintain his independence from the Lord and his opposition to him. And then listen to what he says afterwards. It was not a lack of information that was the problem. Pharaoh was displaying the inner heart rebellion against God that is typical of fallen mankind. So I've said this before, but I want to really hone in on it now. What the Lord is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing through this constant reference to Pharaoh, and specifically here at the end of the third plague, as his magicians look at him and say, this is the finger of God, what the Holy Spirit is doing is giving us an illustration of fallen mankind. So this is not just some distant, ultra-wicked individual that we point to and say, man, glad I'm not like Pharaoh. You were. If you're a Christian here this morning, you were like Pharaoh. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you are like Pharaoh. Now, it is not that you don't have evidence. You breathe. You think. You see stars. And you see your dog You see all sorts of creatures from the tiniest to the largest. Evidence is all around you. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You do not need a PhD in any kind of science to know that God made the world. You do not need a PhD in psychology or psychiatry to know that God made the human mind in his own image. All around us is evidence of the glory of the maker. All around us and inside of us is evidence that God must be worshipped and that to not worship him is the greatest evil. All around us. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you can continue to deceive yourself into thinking you just haven't read enough books or God hasn't given you enough information. But the truth is, That it is your inner desire to maintain your independence from the Lord and your opposition to Him that is the problem. You love self. And God gets in the way of your worship of self because it is God whom you have to bow to. It is God who has to take the supreme place over your own desires, over what you want in this given moment. It is God who represents the the ultimate authority before whom you one day must stand. If you are honest with yourself, it is not that God has failed to reveal himself to you adequately. If you're honest with yourself, it is that you have failed to stop worshiping yourself. This is the plight of all sinners. It's not about evidence. It's about self-will and rebellion against the maker. So what is the remedy? The remedy is Jesus Christ. He's the only remedy. He's the only way that we will come to be made right with God. He's the only way we'll come to see God for who he is. That we'll come to worship him, worship him for who he is. Only through Christ's death and resurrection and only through trusting in him do we receive eyes to see and ears to hear. It is only by God's grace through Christ that we move from being in Adam and being like Pharaoh to being in Christ and becoming increasingly more like Christ. So my plea with you this morning if you're an unbeliever is... Do not be like Pharaoh. Run to Christ. Stop being like Pharaoh. Run to Christ. Cry out to Christ for His grace. He saves sinners. He did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick. Sin sick. He came for those who need to be saved. If you recognize you are a sinner, that is the beginning of an embrace of the great news, the good news of Christ, because it is in first recognizing that you are a sinner that you then turn to Christ and you realize, well, that's great because Christ came for sinners. If I am a sinner, then that means Christ came for me. Turn to him. Trust in him. Be saved from this Pharaoh-like life of self-worship that ends only in destruction. It ends only in in hell. As we finish this morning, I also want to say to those of us who are believers that I think we're being told here that we need to guard our hearts. You know, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is true. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. This is also true. The way those two things work together is a mystery to us, and those who try to solve it, I think, try in vain. These two things are both true and what it reminds us is that we can harden our heart against god's voice. Let me just ask you this morning, are you hardening your heart in your persistence in sin? Your persistence in these things that you continue to do. You continue to do. You know it's sin, you know it's wrong, you keep on. You're hardening your heart. You're making it harder than this wood. So that you won't hear God's voice. Your conscience will be seared. And no longer will you be malleable in the hand of the Lord. You'll drift and you'll drift and you'll drift like Samson and drift and drift. Though the Lord will not let you drift away, your life will be fruitless, not entirely or else you're not a Christian, your life will be wasted, your testimony will be marred, and rather than giving glory to God with your life, you will smear God's name among those you meet. So Christian, don't harden your heart against the Lord. Keep a short list with your conscience. Pray to the Lord. Confess your sin. And don't allow your heart to become calloused and calloused and calloused. If the Lord has been speaking to you, if he's been showing you from his word that what you're doing is wrong and sinful, let it go. Repent of it. Turn from it. And do not let your heart grow hard. Instead of hardening your heart, we are told in Proverbs chapter 4 to guard our hearts. Will you guard your heart this morning? by repenting of sin and turning to Christ and resolving with His help by the power of the Spirit to live for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for time together to worship this morning. We ask that You will guard us from having hardened hearts. Lord, as we think about... uh, The fact that our our hearts are, are new, on them is written your law. We've been reborn and made alive in the inner person. And yet, Lord, we know that we can do damage to our consciences. We know that we can make our lives unfruitful and not useful for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray for all gathered here this morning, Lord, that we would be serious in our examination before you of our own hearts, that we would guard our hearts and not allow them to become hard and calloused and impenetrable. Father, thank you that uh, though we often are foolish, you are gracious to us, God. We praise you that you keep us and you preserve us and we will Make it to the end. We will be redeemed ultimately. Our bodies will be raised and redeemed. As Paul says in Romans 8, we will dwell with you in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Lord, we thank you that you are gracious to us as redeemed sinners. And yet Lord, you call us to turn away from sin. You call us to flee from sin. Lord, we pray that you would mercifully work that into our hearts today. God, I pray for anyone among us this morning who is not a Christian. Lord, would you help them to see who they really are from your perspective. Uh, made in your image, not a gnat or, or lice or mosquitoes. Lord, they are a human being made in your image. And yet, like Pharaoh, they are in rebellion against you. And they love themselves more than your glory. God, would you show them the truth of this, and would they flee to Christ? Would they flee the city of destruction and run to the great King? God, I pray that you would be merciful uh, to the children who are gathered here this morning as uh, we've, we've just had the sermon, Lord. I pray that what was preached, that parts of it, Lord, would sit on their hearts and that you would not let it go away, and that you would use what we looked at today to contribute to their salvation, Lord, that you would use it to, to uh, grow them, if they are already believers, that you would use it, Lord, uh, to awaken them to new life through Christ. We love you, Father. We thank you for time together. We thank you for the communion that we share before the Lord's Supper here. Uh, as we go through this, God, we pray that you would bless it, that we would commune with you and commune with one another, and that we would remember the Lord Jesus. And It's in his name we pray. Amen.